morning. morning. How's everyone this morning? I bring you greetings from the frozen tundra of northern New York. Uh, Believe it or not, it's warm here compared to where we've come from. So we're enjoying the weather and Robin's enjoying seeing the daffodils and the flowers starting to spring up because it's lifetime. Isn't spring when you start to think about renewal in life? Um, I'm not going to tell you what Robin and I do. We just simply run a ministry called Pure for God, and we train youth workers. That's one of our primary responsibilities. But if you'd like to know more about our ministry, please come up and see us uh, following the service today. But the message for this morning is actually pretty simple, and that's this. If you're a Christian, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you and I share the responsibility equally of taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people that we know. Every Christian shares an equal responsibility to share with the people they know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as Christians, we'll amen that, but following through on it is something completely different. I don't know about you, but sharing my faith personally with the people around me, I often find difficult. Do any of you? Okay. I'm a very shy person. Robin? Am I a very shy person? I'm very introverted. Now, I don't have a problem speaking in front of groups of people, but you put me in a room with one person, that's very, very difficult. Any of you feel like that? And so I find sharing my faith something that is a challenge and is difficult. I remember one, I think it was a Wednesday or a Thursday morning in the winter in Buffalo, I was sitting in a, in a coffee shop having my coffee and a pastry in the morning, and, and I was thinking about that, and I was wanting to share my faith, but I was finding it difficult. And I grumbled with the Lord. You ever do that? You know, like, why didn't you make me more outgoing? Why didn't you give me a better personality? You know, why didn't you give me, you know, looks that would be attractive to people rather than repulsive to people or whatever? I said, Lord, you didn't really equip me for this. And so I'm feeling sorry for myself. So do you know what the Lord always does when I do that? He brings an object lesson. So I'm sitting there, and in through the door walk 15 people all over the age of 100, dressed in spandex. <laughs> now, that is something in and of itself to see 15 people over 100 dressed in spandex. And they had these little logos on their spandex outfits that said the Centurion Cross Country Ski Team. (laughs) These were 15 people all over the age of 100 cross country skiing. And I looked up at heaven and said, Lord, I am never going to complain again (laughs) about you calling me to do something. Because what were they saying? They weren't going to let their age or the bad weather be a deterrent from them doing something that they loved. And you know, that's what the gospel should be, really. It is hard and difficult at times, but we should never be deterred because of how much we love God and how much He loves us. So if you have your Bibles, turn to um, Matthew chapter 28, which is what? The Great Commission. While you're turning to that, um, as Graham was reading the scripture from Psalms 32, In the flyleaf of my Bible next to it, I have written this. When the church is silent about the gospel, fiction is the only option. And the fate of fallen sinners is in the hands of fallen sinners. Wow. When the church is silent about the gospel, fiction is the only option. And the fate of fallen sinners is in the hands of of fallen sinners. Can you think of a worse fate than being a fallen sinner in the hands of fallen sinners? I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, and I'm just going to simply ask you this morning to listen to the Lord. Listen for His voice, not mine. Listen to His Spirit, not mine. Listen to the Holy Spirit. And what I want you to listen for is a name or names. Just simply sit there and sit quietly before the Lord and say, Lord, I want you to speak to me names. The Lord calls us by name, doesn't he? So as he speaks to you this morning, I want you to listen for names. I want you to listen for these names. Do you know anybody that's spiritually dead that you know in your neighborhood, your workplace, your family? Is there a name that comes to your mind? Do you know anyone that condemns himself regularly? Do you know anyone that has mental illness? 
struggles with the day-to-day thought patterns of life? Do you know anybody that just has no mercy for themselves or for other people? Do you know anybody that hates you? Can you think of a name of someone who hates you? Do you know someone in your neighborhood or in your family that's abused? Do you know a widow, someone who's recently lost their spouse? Or do you know a kid that doesn't have a family? If I mention the word abuser, someone who abuses other people, does a name come to your heart or your mind? What about, do you know someone who is selfish? It's all about them. Do you know an addict? Someone addicted to drugs or alcohol? Do you know somebody who lives all by themselves and has no family or friends? Do you know someone, when you look at their life, they just seem hopeless? Everything's negative. Do you know somebody who says they're an atheist or an agnostic or somebody trapped in a false religion? Does a name pop to your mind? Do you know someone that once professed a faith of some kind but now has nothing to do with God? Did a name pop into your heart or your mind after any one of those? I want you to look up here. If a name popped into your heart or your mind, you're now commissioned. Think about that. What does the Lord want us to do in the Great Commission? What does he say? To go into all the world and preach the gospel to who? Every living creature. Now, if you got a name, they fall into the every category and they fall into the living category. And the commission is yours. Our commission is to go and take the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, to anyone that we meet that is living. And when he places names on our hearts or on our minds of people that we know that do not know him, it is for the purpose of reminding us that we have received a great commission. Now, it's interesting, um, we just celebrated my wife's father's 90th birthday. And he's a really outgoing guy. He's got more energy at 90 than most people do at 50. For 60 years, he was a fuller brush salesman. He went door to door and knocked on doors and sold cleaning products and brushes to people in the neighborhood. He's always been a Christian. He had a good family. But about 25 years ago, he retired. And when he was retired, dad all of a sudden had all these skills as a door-to-door salesman and all the energy, but he didn't have the job. So do you know what God did? God took the second half of his life and turned him into an evangelist. And he goes around and shares Christ. Even at 90, he's in a retirement home now. Every time we go down there, doesn't he talk, Robin, about the people that he shared Christ with, the people that he's led to Christ? He's led 85-year-old Jewish men to Christ. That's a tough audience. (laughs) It is. He has shared his faith faithfully. And all of a sudden, I say, here he's 90 years old. His wife went home to be with the Lord two years ago. And he still knows he has a purpose in this world, and that is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so my encouragement to you today is is even though we may have obstacles like age or the people that we're talking to or our own limitations as far as talents or abilities, it does not relieve us of the responsibility to do it. So let's look at the Great Commission. It's in Matthew chapter 28, and I want to read those verses to you, starting with verse 16. It's called the Great Commission. It says, And the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where where Jesus had told them. And when he saw them, they worshipped him, but some, what? Doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded to you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Now, how many of you have ever heard a sermon or a Bible study on the Great Commission? We all have, right? We've probably heard multiple ones. And I've heard some incredible sermons on the Great Commission. I remember one sermon I heard, it was a man who was talking and using the illustration of a hunting dog. And he's saying, no good hunting dog is taught just to stay. Can you imagine if your hunting dog, the only thing he knew was to stay? And he says, that's like the church today. We got stay 
down pat. But when does the hunting dog become effective? Go. I raise hunting dogs. Go. Hunt them out. Release. And we've become stationary. So that was his interpretation of one of the key points in the Great Commission. I heard another, it was a black pastor. He stands up and he goes, no go, no low. No go, no low. What does that mean? What is the Great Commission? Go into all the world and preach the gospel and lo, I am with you always. He says, you don't go, he's not with you. Pretty powerful point, isn't it? God is with us more and more, but the time he is with us the most is when we are out doing his work of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another sermon I heard was something like this. It said, God did not command us to go and make disciples. He called us to go and be disciples and reproduce ourselves. All of those things are true. And I realized that almost all the sermons that I had heard about the Great Commission were about the Great Commission, but I'd never heard a sermon on the commissioner, the one who's doing the commission. And who is that? It's God the Father. It's through His Son, Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as I began to look and understand it, I began to think about who is it that commissions us? It's God the Father. And what is the heart of that commissioner? You know, it seems over the last five or six years especially, the topic of the Father heart of God has become one of those hot-button topics in the church. I've been asked to speak on it, and there's lots of books and stuff on it. And I've realized that a lot of people like to hear about the Father God because a lot of people are detached and have a misunderstanding of fatherhood altogether, let alone the fatherhood of God. But unfortunately what happens is as many times when people want to hear about the Father heart of God, the only thing they want to hear about is his attribute of love. And he is love. But God is not defined by love. One of his attributes is love. And there's a difference. Have you ever met people that they just want to define God as love? And so God would never judge anybody. God would never expect anything of anyone. God would always accept everyone no matter what they've said or done because God is love. Now, God is love, but he's also just. He's also holy. He's also omnipresent. There's lots of characteristics of God. But when you understand who God is, that he's loving, yes, but he's holy also. And plus, he's all these other things. And he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. You need to sit there and take a few minutes and think about the heart of the commissioner, the heart of the one who has called us to go. Now, he is a loving father. And you go back to the book of Genesis, and you'll see that he had children. And what did those children do? They rebelled. They fell into sin, and they became lost. They were the first lost people in the Bible. Now, have any of you ever lost your child for a short period of time? It's the worst feeling in the world, especially if you're the father, and you've got to go home and try to explain to your wife that you've lost your child, okay? Not a comforting time. But I remember Rob and I had a, our, our first daughter, Bonnie. Bonnie was, what, three or four. Bonnie decides she's going to walk around the block. So all of a sudden, Robin goes, where's Bonnie? I go, I don't know. I thought she was with you. No, I thought she was with you. And she was gone, what, half hour maybe? You panic, don't you? You know that feeling in your heart? There's no worse feeling as a loving parent that my child's lost. All of a sudden, we see Bonnie walking down the street. And what did she say she was doing? Going to get the bad guys. She was going to get the bad guys, okay? Well, you want to hug her and punish her at the same time, right? Mixed feelings. Well, take that little bit of feeling there and start to think about God sits in heaven as a loving father and the world's lost. Horrible, isn't it? So I began to sit there and think, what are the worst fears? What are the things that break the heart of a father more than anything else? I asked a group of students this a couple of years ago. Here's the list they came up with, or we came up with. Insanity. Can you imagine being a parent and watching your child go insane? How that, what that would do to your heart? Here's the list. That my child would get involved with the lowlifes of people that were going to hurt them and misuse them. That they would be the victim of violence. One of the kids said that they'd become a violent person. 
How about that they'd get kidnapped? How about that their marriage would fall apart? How about that they would be attacked and assaulted? How about they would have an abortion? How about commit suicide? Disown the family? Be imprisoned for a crime? Be hopelessly addicted? Suffer a terminal illness? Live their life homeless? And the number one answer was that they would want nothing to do with me. Doesn't that describe mankind and God? Those are the people that we live around every single day. Those are your neighbors, your family members. And they might be nice people, and they might even be religious people. They could be friendly people, or they may not be. But as far as God's concerned, they are lost and gone and alienated from him and his heart is broken. Now, can you imagine if somebody stood up here and told their story of a child that had been kidnapped or raped or had committed suicide and we sat there with no expression what that would say about us? How could we call ourselves Christian? How could we call ourselves human and not react internally and emotionally to the story of a father whose children are beyond lost. They're fallen. They've been taken captive. They have been misused by a world system. They are taken by this world and taken away from, and they te- the world system teaches us or teaches them that the Father is no good, that He doesn't love them, that He doesn't care. For us to sit back and not get a burden of passion for lost people is a condemnation of ourselves by ourselves to the lack of love in our heart. Because we would be concerned that a, a, a child would fall down a well more than we would about the eternal destiny of a person next to us. And God's call for us this morning is is to wake up to the reality that the people that surround you all the time that don't know him are lost. And God, our Father, is brokenhearted. And he has sent us into the world to tell them that they are loved and they can be forgiven, that they can have mercy, that they're not this group of people covered with dots, but there's somebody who wants to rip those dots off and to bring them into a relationship with a God who loves them. If I were to paraphrase the Great Commission, it'd be something like this. We are to search the world, especially the most undesirable places, looking for the most undesirable people and sharing with them the fact that there is a father who's brokenhearted and grieving over them who loves them. And if we cannot feel anything stir inside of us when we get feelings about the broken heart of God and the lost condition of man, we need to seriously take a look at ourselves as do we share the heart of the commissioner. I think the great commission for some of us, for me many times, has become the great omission. From the great commission to the great omission, it's the thing that we leave out. When in God's book, it is the number one task that he has put on the church. Did you know that? It is the greatest thing that he has called us to do is to go, whether it's next door or around the world, and to tell people that there is a father who loves them, who recognizes their lostness and has an answer for it, and he wants them to come home. Turn with me quickly now to Acts chapter 20. This is a passage of scripture where Paul was talking to the Ephesians. And he was writing them a letter about the importance of sharing the gospel one-on-one with people. You know, sometimes in our age, we begin to think that uh, personal evangelism has been replaced by something newer and better, you know, something professional or well-produced. The Bible is a book from the very beginning to the very end that it's about people talking to individual people about what Christ has done for them and what he has done in their life as well. And in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 31, and we won't take time to read that whole passage, but I encourage you to do it, Paul basically does an exposition on the great commission to this church, telling them that they need to get out just like he was and preach the gospel door to door, on street corners, in public, in private settings, and not be ashamed to tell people all of what God says in his word. 
And I have to believe that if Paul were to look at the state of the church today, and I'll group the Western church in that, the United States, Canada, England, you know, Europe, that we have taken something that was God's highest priority for the church, and we've demoted it to something than less than a great commission. I wrote this down. We have taken the commission, the task, the call, the responsibility of personally sharing the gospel with our neighbors and our family, and we have demoted it to the lowest level of priorities in ministry and in life. I want to repeat that. We have taken the commission, the task, the call, the responsibility of personally sharing the gospel with our neighbors and our families, and we have demoted it to the lowest level of priorities in ministry and in life. If we were an organization, sharing the gospel personally with people is equivalent to picking up the trash. We've somehow elevated ourselves that sharing our faith to other people because it's difficult or embarrassing or it's hard to do is beneath us. My friends, there is no greater task, no greater privilege, no greater way to please the Father than to share his love with somebody who doesn't know it or have it. Whether it's in word or whether it's in action, and both are equally important, we have demoted the Great Commission to picking up trash. Nobody wants that job. But it's everybody's job. And the church is a mess because of it. So why do we struggle so much with fulfilling the Great Commission? I think the main reason, I'm just talking about myself here. I hope you realize that I've agonized over this sermon for months. This isn't something that God gave me as a message for you. It's a God message that he gave to me that I've tried to work through, and I tried to address myself and then let you listen in on it. So I sat there and said, God, why do I struggle so much with personal evangelism? And he said, because your heart is cold. We can come up with all the excuses in the world that want, but the number one reason we will not open our mouths and share our faith is because our heart has become cold. In Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, there's a story where Jesus is having a Bible study. He's sitting there talking to a group of people, and around him are two groups of people. <clears throat> there are the sinners, and there are the religious people. Okay? And in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, Jesus is teaching, and he hears the religious people grumbling. Jesus is up there teaching. You can't really understand what they're saying. But unfortunately for them, they didn't know that Jesus did understand what they were saying because he could read their hearts, right? I want to paraphrase what they were saying. They were sitting there. Jesus got all these sinners sitting around him, and here's the Pharisee sitting off to the side. One Pharisee looks at the other Pharisee and says, how did all these sinners end up here? Where did all these lowlifes come from? Where did all these obnoxious people come from? And the other Pharisee goes, well, I certainly didn't invite them. And that's what they were grumbling. And Jesus called them on it. You see, so many times what happens is our heart has become cold to the people that warm God's heart. You don't think it's exciting for the Father when somebody who doesn't know Him comes into church? They're taking a step towards Him? This child that's lost, broken, afraid, alienated, and all of a sudden that person gets the courage. And I'm telling you, it takes courage to walk through the church doors today for many people, doesn't it? For them to walk through the door, you can't imagine the heart of the Father going, yeah. But C.S. Lewis once said this. He said, it is an incredibly serious thing that I would ever do anything to alienate people from the truth. My friends, if we're not inviting people and warmly greeting people and calling people back to God, chances are we're alienating them. There's no neutral ground there. And so for me, searching my heart and saying, do I have a heart that gets excited when I get an opportunity to talk to somebody who doesn't know the love of God and know the love of Christ? We had a neat opportunity the other day. Uh, Graham and Arlene took us over to Iron Bridge, and we were walking around, and they took us to this nice little coffee shop for, for lunch, and we're sitting there, and um, all of a sudden, the man in the table next to us goes, excuse me, 
Are you Americans? He was a very perceptive man. <laughs> we try to blend in really well. I think I look British. Do, I think I, no, no, okay, okay, I'm sorry. It's the cap, the baseball cap, I know. So we're sitting there, and all of a sudden he started talking to us about, you know, coming from America. And about, but it wasn't long before he started talking about his family and about his depression and his loneliness. And, and so we had an opportunity to sit there, and, and I grabbed him by the hand. I said, can I pray for you? And he said, sure. He bowed his head. We prayed. His name was Andrew. In fact, Robin has his last name, and she's got his Facebook address. If there's somebody here who'd like to follow up on him, he struggles with depression. His wife struggles with mental illness. But he was a pleasant man, but he's been through a lot of hurt and pain. And I sit there, you know, sometimes it's easy to share our faith and we miss the opportunities. God wants people to come to him. He draws them. We're the ones that often interfere in that drawing process. So here in Acts chapter 20, Paul comes to this church in Ephesus, and he basically says that sharing your faith personally one-on-one -on -one, is the way to go. Paul's wife, life was, I love people, I'll pray for people, I'll work hard, I'll sacrifice anything I can for the opportunity of sharing the gospel with them. It's kind of a, a summary of this a section here. And then he goes on and he says, it is his most effective method. Look at chapter 20, verse 20. He says, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught to you, what? Publicly and from house to house. He went around and met people wherever they were at, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you read Paul's letters, you'll see there's nothing that excites his heart more. His best memories of life were leading people to Christ. He's always talking about people's names, and he's saying, oh, you got to visit this person. This person came to Christ here, and they're going to come and see you. And we just saw the ironsmith come to Christ, and we saw this lady come to Christ, and we saw this couple lead their child to Christ. And it was all getting excited about personally sharing his faith. It was his fondest memories. And I tell you, to me, in my life's experience, when I look back now, the things that have meant the most are those times where I had the opportunity to see a baby get birthed, to see a person come into the kingdom of God. About five or six years ago, I was at a church in Gary, New York, and after the service, this guy walks up to me. He's probably in his mid-30s, and his wife and two children were there, and he says, do you remember me? I said, no, I really don't. He says, I met you 20 years ago when I was 15 and you led me to Christ. He says, I want you to know, he says, I love the Lord and my wife loves the Lord and my kids love the Lord. I go, that's why you do what you do. And I sat there and I go, oh, thank you, Jesus. Because we think about maybe the times where it's the other side. Paul's greatest joys, as ours should be, is when we have the opportunity to lead somebody to Christ. Do you know what our greatest heartbreak should be? when they don't come to Christ, when they turn their back on Christ, when they want nothing to do with him. In the 80s, we, Rob and I used to take a youth choir and we would travel around and go to churches and we would go to places, but our primary place of ministry were in rescue missions and in senior citizens facilities. You know, the church is over-entertained most of the time anyway. They don't need another singer. But you go to a, a city mission or a, an elderly home, they love to have people come and share. So we went to the San Francisco, a San Francisco retirement home. It was a, I remember, seven or eight story building filled with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of displaced elderly people. The thing about San Francisco is, is they weren't white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. They were from every nation of the world and every background you could imagine. And we took our kids in there and the kids didn't sing that night. They just went around and visited people in their rooms. But this is downtown San Francisco. This is not exactly the nicest neighborhood in the world either. So we have 60 kids, and we get back to the bus, and we count, and there's only 59. Now, as a director of a youth group, what are you thinking? How am I going to call this parent and tell them I've lost their child in San Francisco? You're thinking the worst. Something has happened. So I say, okay, all of you stay on the bus, and I'm going to go inside, and I'm going to find 
this girl. Her name was Carrie Siegel. She was about this tall, the most petite little girl you'd ever want to see. Beautiful girl, long brown hair, very outgoing, very loving. So I'm going up and down the hallways. I get up to the sixth floor, and there she is. And I come in, and she's like this, with her hands, holding onto the hands of this elderly gentleman, pleading with him to accept Christ. Pleading, crying, crying and crying. And he is this obstinate, arrogant man. And I'm sitting there watching all of this. And I knew it was a sacred moment. It wasn't a time for me to interfere. So I didn't. So I take a a step back, and all of a sudden, I had to tell her it was time to go. I said, Carrie, we need to leave. And she came down the hallway, and she fell into my arms. She sobbed, sobbed. She goes, I failed. I failed. I go, I said, honey, what do you mean you failed? She goes, he didn't come to Christ. I said, honey, if he couldn't come to Christ after seeing your tears and your heart and your love, I said, he's a hard-hearted man. He's responsible. You were faithful to do what God called you to do. And don't we all wish we were that brokenhearted when people wouldn't give their lives to Christ? That's the heart of an evangelist, the heart of someone who wants to lead people to Christ. And so people coming to Christ should be our greatest joy, People rejecting Christ should be our biggest heartbreak. And Paul was the person who was sitting there saying, I will do anything it takes to save or rescue somebody from an eternity without Christ. So the second thing I began to think was, as well, fear is certainly another factor that keeps me from sharing my faith with Christ. I'm not willing to risk a lot of times. You ever find yourself in that category? I'm not going to risk embarrassment. I'm not going to risk rejection. I'm not going to risk the fact that they might think I'm a nut job. Okay? I just, I just am shy. And so for me to walk up and talk to somebody not about the gospel is very hard. Now the component of throwing a religious component in in a secular society, it can be very, very intimidating. But Paul said this. Paul said, I will risk my life because of the importance of the commission I have been given by God. He says, I will go out and seek to rescue those that are lost, no matter what the opposition may be. Whether the Jews oppose me, whether the religious people oppose me, whether secular philosophers oppose me, whether the Roman guards, it doesn't make any difference. I don't care. I would rather die than not have an opportunity to share my faith with somebody else. And so I think if Paul were to paraphrase, which he does here, the Great Commission, it would read something like this. It is my job to rescue people from sin and from the savage spiritual wolves that surround them. It is my responsibility to testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says that in verses 29 and 24. 29, he says, there are people out there and there are savage wolves going after them. And in verse 24, he says, it is my responsibility to testify of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Talked about it being the great omission. Maybe we could reduce it to even say it's become the great no mission. And so I asked myself this question, if the great commission isn't the great commission in my life, What is my number one mission in life? If my number one mission in life is not the number one mission that God has for me, and that's to lead people into his kingdom and share his faith, what has replaced it? What has become my mission? What is your mission if it isn't to share your faith with your neighbors, your family, your friends, and the people you work with? What has replaced it? You know what? I tried to come up with something that sounded good before God. What do you think I came up with? Zip. There is nothing that I could come up with as a Christian, as my number one mission in life, that I could stand before God and use as an excuse to put away my responsibility of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who do not know him. Have any of you ever seen the movie Blood Diamond? Okay. Good movie, excellent movie. And it's about Sierra Leone, and it's about a country where um, rebels were taking over the country, and what they wanted to do is they wanted to control the diamond industry. 
And so the country was complete chaos. And so you'd have these warlords, and the way they would recruit soldiers was by abducting boys. You ever seen these boy soldiers? Okay. They estimate right now in that country alone, there's probably two to 300,000 boy soldiers. These are less than 12 years of age. And the story of the movie is there's this man named Solomon. And one day these raiders come in and they abduct his son, Dia. They just rob him, steal him in the middle of the night. And all of a sudden, his son is gone. And he says to his wife, I am going to search this entire country and I will not stop until we get our son Dia back. And so throughout the movie, he's going from village to village and threatening situation to threatening situation, day after day, week after week, month after month, looking for his son Dia. And then finally, he comes upon this camp and he looks in and there's his son sitting at the camp. And the camp is a vile place. There are things being shown to those kids on video screens they should not see. They're smoking, they're drinking, they're gambling, they're swearing, they're violent with each other. It's a horrible environment. But Solomon sees his son, Dia. So he gets in and he walks and sneaks into the camp and walks up to his son and taps him on the shoulder and goes, Dia, Dia. And he expects his son to turn around and go, oh, dad, thank you, get me out of here. And his son turns around and has this completely emotionless, blank stare on his face. And he looks at him, he says, Dia, I'm your father, come with me. And his son stands up and goes, traitor, enemy. And the camp goes nuts. And all of a sudden, everybody starts grabbing their guns. And some of the people that were traveling with Solomon start opening fire in the camp. And this battle ensues. And all of a sudden, Dia's trying to run away from him. And then the head of the camp, the man who abducted his son, the man that was responsible and the overlord for this, this group of people that stole children, comes face to face with Solomon. And I'm not going to describe it, but that warlord faced the wrath of a father. And my friends, we don't like to think of it like that, but God has wrath and anger and hatred towards the people and the system in this world that are killing his children. God is loving, but God hates to see his children in the hands of a system or a world that is abusers. So finally, after this long battle, he's able to grab his son and they leave the camp. And they're traveling for a couple of days. And all of a sudden, they're sitting around the campfire, and all of a sudden, he hears the click of a gun. And here's Dia standing with a gun pointed at his head, ready to pull the trigger. This is his son. Can you imagine? And he's looking at his son, but he doesn't get angry. He gets this soft, warm look on his face. And I actually wrote down the dialogue because I didn't want to mess it up. This is what he said to his son. He says, son... You are Dia. He named him. You are Dia. Of my tribe, you are a good boy. Your mother loves you and misses you, and your family wants you home. I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you. You will come home again. You will be my son. And he grabbed them by the face. And you could see the son just start to cry. And he started to cry. And they embraced each other. That's what God is like with people. There are people in this world who don't know there's a father who loves them and wants them to come home. They live in a world system that has driven them and pushed them into doing bad things. And they don't know there's a way out. And they think God is mean and angry and wants nothing to do with them. It's because they don't know him. And it's our responsibility to model that for them and to teach them that. But there's one other issue. We can, we can put off reaching people for Christ because we're afraid and because of the risk. Sometimes it's because we have a cold heart. But I think sometimes it's because we forget the seriousness of the issue. The real issue, when you look at lost people, and your responsibility of reaching them, and God's role in it can be summed up in one word, and that is the word blood. You know, we don't 
hear the word blood in a lot of our sermons today, but blood, we are redeemed by the blood. You guys sing nothing but the blood here, right? What can wash away my sins? What's the next line? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flow, what? That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 20, Paul says, listen, you're not going to be effective evangelist if you don't understand three types of blood. First of all, he says the first type of blood is the blood of Jesus. If you look at verse 28, he talks about how God has sent his son. He says, keep watch over yourselves. He says, watch over the church of God, which Jesus, he bought with his own blood. What did it cost God to reach you and me? It was the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that the great element of love that separates Christianity from every other religion? That God's son would die so he could have a relationship with us? Salvation cost the blood of his son. But there's another blood involved. You'll see, secondly, he says, our blood is involved. If you look at verse 24, he says, however, I consider my life worth what? Nothing to me. I would be willing to die. I would be willing to share my blood. For what? The end of verse 24, for the task of testifying of the gospel of grace. There are times that we have to be willing to give our own blood, our own faith, our own life, our own pride, whatever it is, we have to let that die to be able to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Christ gave his blood. He calls us to be willing to give our blood. But then he goes on and he says this, and this is the sobering one, all right? If you look at it, it's in verse, I think it's 26. He says, therefore I declare to you today that I am what? Innocent of the blood of all men. This is how Paul perceived it. If he met someone and had relationship with them and had an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them and didn't, the blood for that person, their eternal destiny was on his hands and he would be held accountable for it. That's a pretty high standard, isn't it? That he was responsible for the blood of people. We are responsible for the people that we meet. We are responsible for the people that we know. When we stand before God, he will say, why didn't you say something to that person? And I think it would be awful hard to hear God say that, but can you imagine looking into the faces of those people who knew us but we never shared? How could we have something so beautiful and so valuable and withhold it from them? My daughter, Laura, has turned into an intercessor. She's, in, she's around 30 now. My daughter was a handful growing up. I mean, my daughter uh, from ages 15 to 17 was a rebel, and we didn't think we'd ever get her back. She was as prodigal as you could get. She got pregnant. She wanted nothing to do with us, wanted nothing to do with church, nothing to do with faithfulness, purity, nothing. Now she's an intercessor, and she loves the Lord passionately, but she has a burden for people that were like her. So she sent me a text last night, or an email last night, and basically said, Dad, I don't know why, but God wanted me to send this, this quote from Spurgeon to you. My daughter's gone from a rebellious teenager to somebody who reads Spurgeon, okay? That's a pretty big leap. That's, that's redemption, okay? But the quote went something like this. If people have to enter into hell, at least make them leap over me. If people are going to go to hell, at least let it be with me holding on to their legs trying to keep them out. God forbid that anybody would enter into hell unprayed for or untold. Wow. Wow. And as I, you know, as I sat there and I thought about that before God, I said, you know, me not being motivated is one thing. Me being afraid is another thing. Me having a cold heart is one thing. But the reality of the fact is, is that there are people who will spend an eternity apart from God if you and I are not willing to open up our mouths. That's a hard thing to hear. You know, and as I was thinking about sharing this with you this morning, I began to sit there and think, I go, God, I don't want to go there and make people feel guilty about not being evangelistic. You know what he said to me? Neither do I. 
The purpose of this challenge is not for one person in this room to feel guilty. Because you know guilt is a response of the flesh, not the spirit. And so if we feel guilty when we hear something like this from the Lord, that's not our spirit responding to that. That's our sinful nature responding to that. God does not want anybody in this room to feel guilty because we failed at times, or maybe many times, or maybe consistently over a period of time at sharing him with other people. However, he does want us to be convicted. God loves to convict his people when we're not doing the things that we should do. And this morning, if God has talked to your heart, he's given you a name and a challenge, then sit there and let his spirit convict you and motivate you to change, to allow him to change your ability to take your faith to other people. He didn't bring you here to feel guilty, but he did bring you here maybe to expose some coldness in your heart. He did come here this morning to make some of us feel uncomfortable. He did come here to convict us. For some of us, he wanted to put a new level of responsibility on our hearts for reaching the lost. For some of us, he wants to challenge us to get up and start doing stuff. For some of us, he might be compelling us. For some of us, he might just be flat out irritating you. You know, one thing I found out about God is he can be pretty irritating. Can he? He knows how to put that burr under your blanket until you're willing to move around and make some changes. But it's always motivated by something good, to produce something good, and to have an end result that is good. He may want you to feel remorseful or ashamed or um, brokenhearted over opportunities that you've missed and the people you haven't shared with. But you know what he says? He says, it's not over. Just change today and get out. Recommit to take the gospel to those people that maybe you've been hesitant to take it to. Again, God never wants us to feel guilty but he does want to convict us. He wants us to once again assume the personal responsibility of taking his message of his salvation to the people that we have influence over and around. In this passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 20, Paul talks about how he cried over the issue of people's eternal salvation. How it humbled him that God could even use him. You know, we talk about how small we are and how inadequate we are. That's a good thing because God can then use us in our weakness to show people how great he is. God can give us courage when we're chickens. I'm a chicken basically, but God gives us courage. He can compel us. For some of you, I'm hoping he's starting to put something inside of you saying, yeah, go, go. And you're going, all right, that's compelling. And all of a sudden you find yourself starting to go. Let the spirit move your heart to go. Because we have the greatest message in the history of the world. And there are people around us that are lost and alienated from a father who loves them. And we've got the words of reconciliation. Let's go. I read this quote last week and it really bothered me, so I thought I'd let it bother you too. (laughs) If your love, faith, and salvation is not worth sharing, it's not worth having. Wow. Think about that. If your faith your love, your salvation is not worth sharing. It is not worth having. Go back to the heart of the commissioner. His heart is supposed to be alive in us, isn't it? We're supposed to have the same attitude that he does towards the lost. And if we don't have a faith that we share with other people and have a desire to bring other people into the kingdom of God like he graciously brought us into the kingdom, it shows us that we are lacking that genuine spirit of Christ active in our lives in the way that he wants it to be. There are two things, and with this I close, about the Great Commission. The very first thing about the commission is not love, it's about authority. You have the authority that God has given all man. He says, I give you all authority in heaven and earth as I have received it from the Father to go into all the world and preach the gospel and tell them of the love of God. So the two issues we can struggle with is authority. We don't feel strong or adequate or capable or whatever. God's saying, you got all the authority you need in me. And the love God gives us those love for lost people if we'll just let it grow. So my challenge for you today is is to start being the people of God to your family, your friends, your neighbors. 
Start preaching the gospel. God probably gave everybody in this room at least a name or two at the beginning of the service. You are now commissioned to go and to take the love of Christ to that person, to show it to them, but also to share with them in words about what it means about to have a father who loves them, who wants to bring them back out of this lost condition, home to a safe place where they can be cared for. When we used to do evangelistic outreaches with our young people, what we would do is we'd say, draw an X on a piece of paper, just write the names of five of your neighbors around you. Or you could take an X and the names of those people maybe that God gave you at the beginning of this service. And all you have to do is this, Lord, bless them. Lord, bless these people. Draw them to yourself and use me in any way you can to bring them into the kingdom. And you know what? All of a sudden things start to happen. And then you just make a commitment that if there's an opportunity for you to open up your mouth and share faith or to do something kind and loving towards them, you fulfill it. Evangelism's not hard in that size. It's just simply praying and loving and living out Christ to the people around us. Let's pray. So what I want you to do right now is just remember those names or name that God gave you. If he didn't, ask him for some. And if you have been lacking in your concern for the lost, then just confess that now. Just say, Lord... I haven't really been caring that much about the lost people around me. Lord, change my heart. Change my heart, Father. Give me a passion and a burden for lost people. And if God gave you a name or names, then just take those names before him right now and give them as an offering and saying, God, I commit to pray for these people and to love them. And when you give me an opportunity, when it comes, I will be faithful to be willing to share your love and your story with them. But for all of us, can we all agree here this morning that we need to do a more faithful, better job of just simply loving a group of people that are so lost, so broken, so captive, and that we could be the means to bring them to freedom in Christ and to a Father who loves them. And just say, Father, excite me about that. Father, I pray for this church. Lord, I pray for each member here that this responsibility would be equally shared. That you'd get us excited about the message that we have and the authority with which we have. But Father, you will never let us look at lost people the same way again. Let us look at them as you do. And Father, if we are cold-hearted or chicken or if we're hesitant, we pray that their eternal destiny would motivate us to move despite our reservations. That when we see the condition of their lives, your love and mercy for us would motivate us to open our mouths and share with them the great Father that we have found. Lord, help us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.